Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The FT. Hello, welcome back to the Energy Weekly podcast with me, Ed Crooks. In this week's podcast, we'll be taking a look at ClimateGate and the scandals over climate science, and also digging deeply into the finances of BP and asking what the future holds for the company after the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Joining me this week, we have uh, Fiona Harvey, the FT's environment correspondent, and later on we'll be joined by Andrew England, who's our chief Middle East correspondent, down the line from Abu Dhabi, and also by Vincent Boland from the FT's Lex team. Now, Fiona, the thing that we've had over the past few days, there have been two reports on climate science and, as I say, the, the scandals that have come to be known as Climate Gate are uh, into separate aspects of the scandal, one to do with the uh, IPCC and the other to do with these now notorious emails from the University of East Anglia. To take perhaps the, the, the one about the, uh, the UEA emails first, what's the conclusion of that? Well, the conclusion is that the scientists involved have come out uh, without a, a stain on their character as far as their science is concerned. What the uh, review said was that uh, their rigour and honesty as scientists are not in doubt. They did, however, find that there had been what you could call a, a culture of secrecy at the University of East Anglia and among climate change scientists in general. The report, uh, which was carried out by uh, Sir Muir Russell, found that um, there is a consistent pattern of failing to display the proper degree of openness. That's the situation. It's um, been attacked, of course, by uh, climate change sceptics as a whitewash, but for climate change scientists, it's come as something of a relief. And just to refresh our memory about what the, the central allegations were, that scientists were being asked to release data and they were refusing to release that data. That was one of the issues. And, and what the report found was that actually the data uh, that was being requested from them was already available from the, the original sources of that data. Samir Russell said uh, basically that he put his credit card into a site on the internet and got given it. So it does appear that that, that uh, particular allegation was, was unfounded. And then there's the now notorious hide the decline comment, which That's was made right. by someone in email. What do they say about that? Right, now that's a, that's a bit more difficult. Basically, that was a, a comment made in an email in which a scientist talked about using a trick to hide the decline. This was referring to temperatures in a graph of tree ring data. Scientists used tree rings uh, as a way of uh, being able to extrapolate past temperatures. These particular uh, uh, tree ring data uh, were then being spliced onto other data what the Muir-Russell inquiry decided was that actually you got the same results uh, however you interpreted this data. The scientists themselves had said that what they were talking about was simply a way of combining these two data sets together in a way that made sense. However, the, the Muir-Russell inquiry did say that, that the way in which this had been done had not been fully explained in uh, the graphs that the scientists had been produced and should have been better explained. Their argument was that if the, if the methodology behind this, which was sound, had been better explained, then this problem, uh, this uh, question mark over the, the, the graph would not have arisen. So taking a step back from the detail then, I guess the question is whether this now ends the debate. Certainly this was supposed to be the last word on the emails. It's quite clear though from the, the blogosphere, uh, which I've been looking at since the, the report was released at one o'clock this afternoon, that this really is not 
uh, the end for, for, for climate sceptics. They have attacked the report. They've said it's, it's a whitewash. They've said it didn't look uh, sufficiently into the science. They've said that uh, really is, its conclusions are, are unsound. And in some cases, they do have a little bit of a point. There are a, a few points in the inquiry that are left hanging. For instance, there's a question mark over whether uh, Dr. Phil Jones from the UEA did delete some emails uh, because he thought that they might become subject to uh, freedom of information requests. And the UEA has, has defended him on the basis that, well, you know, everyone deletes emails from time to time. Um, you know, you can't keep hold of every single email on the basis that one day you might be asked to produce it by, by someone. And then separately, we also had a couple of days ago a report from the Netherlands, from the, from the Dutch government, on climate science and specifically on the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. What were the conclusions of that? This uh, this is in regard to the other half of ClimateGate. ClimateGate was basically two related scandals. One, these emails from the University of East Anglia, and the other part was uh, allegations of certain flaws uh, in the IPCC report, the 2007 the landmark uh, report on climate change science. It's supposed to represent everything that we know to date about climate science. And... In January this year, there began to be a, a series of, of allegations made uh, of mistakes in that report. Now, the Dutch government got involved because uh, one of these allegations was over the figures used for the amount of the Netherlands that's actually at risk of, of flooding from climate change. The figure used in the IPCC report was found to be wrong. However, the IPCC scientists said, well, actually, we got it from the Dutch government. Um, so uh, really, uh, you can't really lay that at, at their door. So the Dutch government instituted this uh, this inquiry uh, and it's just reported. And what it's found is that the IPCC is essentially sound. They found a small number of minor errors. There were a, a couple of rather more significant errors that they did find, but we already knew about them. Uh, one was uh, an issue around the Himalayan glaciers. So what they found was essentially that, that uh, the IPCC uh, science was robust. They did have one other thing to say, which was that they thought that parts of the IPCC report were accentuating the, the negative sides, the negative impacts of climate change. But on the other hand, they didn't attribute this necessarily as, as a fault of the IPCC. Fiona Harvey, thank you very much. Now, on to BP. There's been a lot of speculation this week that BP is seeking out uh, new strategic shareholders and looking for sovereign wealth funds and others to put money into the company in order to shore up its finances. Now, BP's denied pretty clearly and explicitly that it's going to issue any new shares to do that. But what it is undoubtedly doing is going out there and talking to a number of different people and saying, look, our shares are cheap. Why not buy some? And one of the places that BP's been doing that is in Abu Dhabi, where Tony Hayward, BP's embattled chief executive, as we seem to be describing him all the time nowadays, he's been visiting there during the course of the day today, uh, as we record this, which is Wednesday. Now, I'm joined on the line to discuss this by Andrew England, the FT's chief Middle East correspondent. So um, uh, what's Tony Hayward been up to then? Have you been following him today? Yes, we have. We've been trying to trace his movements in the Emirates, which is the capital of the United Arab Emirates. We haven't got a lot of insight into who he's actually met. There are reports that he met the crown prince, uh, Sheikh Mohammed, who is one of the most powerful people in the UA and certainly in Abu Dhabi. And we do know that he's been meeting senior, senior officials. So basically, we understand he's been here for about 24 hours talking to the main movers and shakers in Abu Dhabi, which has a series of investment funds that could be potential candidates to uh, snap up shares in BP or possibly even look to take off some of its non-core assets. And what kind of reception do you think he'll have been getting here? 
Well, I think you'd get a reasonably warm reception. BP has a long history with Abu Dhabi, which goes back to the 1930s. It's one of the major players in uh, the oil industry here, where IOCs are actually able to get in fully operational in exploration and production. And people I've spoken to here have said yes, there is interest in what's happening with BP at the moment, but they're not overly concerned. And um, it still is, you know, is, is a partner with Abu Dhabi in its oil industry. And much less politically sensitive, for instance, than getting investment in from Libya, which is the other country that's been talked about a lot over the past few days. We've had Shokri Ghanem, the chairman of the Libyan National Oil Company, saying he thinks that shares are really good value and Libya ought to be buying some. That would be politically explosive, presumably in the US, if that happened. I think, yes. I mean, Abu Dhabi and the UAE in general is, is very different from Libya. It's one of the more moderate Gulf states, it has very good relations with the US and other Western powers. Um, and I think you know, it, the, the interesting thing is knowing what the appetite of the investment vehicles here would be. They've been relatively or relatively quiet um, this year compared to 2002, 2008. And there are numerous different types of investment vehicles here from IDEA, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is one of the largest, to the more internet interventionist vehicles like IPIC, like Mabadla, like Abar, which all have invested in energy-related um, assets at one time or another. But gauging whether they wouldn't actually be interested in taking a stake or taking assets is very hard to tell at the moment. And in Abu Dhabi, there is a tendency for them to keep their business dealings as secretive as they can until they actually do a deal. But on balance, then, if you had to call it, will they be buying some shares? Will they take the view that the shares are looking cheap now and might be a good investment? Yes. Will they be putting up a large amount of money, you know, several billion dollars, in order to kind of shore up BP's finances? That looks less likely. Yeah, I think it's very hard to say. I mean, there have been times when entities in Abu Dhabi have made very high-profile, large investments. And one example is the $7.5 billion idea invested in Citibank back in November 2007. Of course, since then, Citigroup's share prices have gone through the floor, and Abu Dhabi's made it loss and has gone to arbitration uh, over um, the investment in Citigroup. As some of the other funds, like I said, they have been more cautious, but whether they see this as an opportunity to get a stake in you know, what, is, what is a blue-chip company, it's, it's very hard to tell. And then there would always be the question of you know, what exposure they might get to any potential liabilities BP has going forward over the oil spill. So I think there'll be a lot of speculation, but actually knowing what, what the mindset is in terms of the attractiveness of investing in BP or its non-core assets as it tries to sell them, I think it would be just that speculation at this stage. Andrew England from Abu Dhabi, thanks very much indeed. So to discuss BP's finances in a bit more detail, I'm joined now by Vincent Boland from the FT's Lex team. Just how serious are BP's financial problems at the moment? Well, the trouble is that the more they talk about the finances that they have and the, the cash availability, the cash generation that BP has, and it is very considerable, yet, on the other hand, the cost keeps rising. Every estimate one sees of the, the total cost of this catastrophe for BP is higher than the last one, and there is no ceiling there. So uh, at some point, BP will reach a stage where it cannot cope with this from a financial perspective. The question is, will it be able to stop the problem before that uh, point has been reached? The costs of it are into the $30 billion and more, $40 billion in some cases. Um, these are estimates, of course. BP has not, I think, given any official one of its, of its own yet. This is a vast sum, and it is approaching the point where BP needs to be bolstering its balance sheet. Of course, though, it's catch-22, isn't it? Because the more they need the money, the less they can get it. The classic thing about, you know, a bank will... Uh, it's like someone who'll lend you an umbrella any time except when it's raining. They can't 
issue new shares, realistically, not with the share price where it is. Shareholders, existing shareholders will be outraged by that. Uh, bond finance be very, very expensive, given uh, the price of their bonds at the moment, uh, given their, their credit rating having been downgraded by all the major agencies. So really, they are being forced to rely on uh, the mercy of the banks, aren't they? Very much so, yes. Their options are very, very narrow. Even in that kind of scenario, their options are very narrow because uh, they do not have any kind of control over events and over even the financial aspect of this you know, is kind of out of their hands right now as well. So how much difference does it make if they plug the leak then? I would say that it's not merely essential that BP stops the leak. I think BP's survival as a company exists on... Uh, depends on its ability to stop the leak. Somebody said to me the other day when I was talking to him, an analyst in the city said, BP is one more accident away from bankruptcy. And I think that accident is failure to stop the leak. Vincent Boland, thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much also to my other guests, Fiona Harvey and Andrew England. And uh, thank you all very much indeed for listening. The Energy Weekly podcast was produced by LJ Filatroni. I'm Ed Crooks, and we hope you'll be back again next week. Till then, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market 